0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: The best version of you is the person who is deeply locked and engaged in the service of others. Is the concept of self actualization becoming the best version of yourself? By focusing on being the best version of yourself, is is a fallacy. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist, and there's literally like academic rigor behind it, so.
0: What's up, look up, listeners? This is your host, Mark Weinstein. It is March first, two thousand. 20 Man, it has been a while since I've recorded one of these Um, (laughs) I had a little bit of a rocky start to 2020 Uh, I was at a restaurant with my sister and I left my bag in her car in the front seat and when I got out of the restaurant the car window was smashed open and my bag was taken this was the first week of January And it's kind of crazy. I mean, here we are a month, almost two months later, and uh, I'm finally getting around to releasing a new podcast episode. Uh, Part of that is because I had six episodes uh, saved and shared on my computer uh, that was stolen with my bag. I've re-recorded two of those. I actually was able to salvage two of them, so I'm very excited. Lesson learned, saving everything on a... uh, (laughs) Uh, in the cloud from now on right away. Um, back up your stuff if you haven't already. Hopefully this can, if this reaches one person who needs to back up their files and all the life that they have stored on this little foldy thing that they carry around in their bag with them all the time, I hope that you hear this and, uh, and do it. And, you know, it was rough. One, I felt super guilty for the guests that have uh, come on the show and you know, shared their lives and and their wisdom with me, and given me the time uh, to record. I, I didn't feel like such a great steward of their of their words uh, and their ideas. And two, um, building up the courage to start over again is always really really challenging, uh, no matter what. And you know, it really took me uh, a few weeks before I was comfortable and willing and able to get out and find new guests to speak to and luckily for me you know so 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 grateful and so um, feel so blessed to be connected uh, one degree two degrees away from some of the most freaking inspiring people and I actually in this episode speak to one of them and we'll get there uh, we'll definitely get there I just want to share after that personal update that I have really shifted uh, my focus uh, with this show. I have really shifted my intention here. Now, originally, when I started, look up, it was predominantly about our relationship to technology, uh, living in the social media age, and how you know we can adapt to the lives that we lead online through practices and companies that are trying to change the game in that regard. And the show has really expanded for me to become a platform for me to explore various ideas and philosophies uh, and companies and nonprofits and whatever manifestation it, it takes structurally, but to explore just my curiosity. And I hope that, I hope that for those of you listening, that following this journey uh, into my curiosity and into the lives and ideas and businesses and words of my guests that you're being served. And so I make a promise to you, all of you that are listening, that my purpose here is to continue to show up to serve you and to serve the highest good of society because we live in challenging times right now. It feels in many ways that the fabric of relationship uh, is falling by the wayside. There's a lot of uh, fear-based thinking. There's a lot of zero-sum-based thinking. And I, for one, suffer from all of these things. I'm not immune uh, to them. And that's why I'm on this exploration, is to manifest and create an improved life for myself through evolving and developing a toolkit and a language that can serve me in so that I can continue to serve others. And that is the lesson of this episode with Mr. Andrew Horn. It is predominantly an episode that describes for us a way, a framework for showing up in our relationships, for being there for being of service and in gratitude. So much, so much wisdom shared in this episode with me. I'm extremely grateful to Andrew uh, for coming on. This podcast has really evolved because of the guests and their willingness to introduce me to new guests. It's really just an unraveling of those who have previously come on the show and their network I occasionally will shoot out a cold request to someone to come on the show, but mostly it's coming through network and through community. And Andrew and I discuss on this episode the importance of community. Andrew and I met at his home in Brooklyn, actually, when I was recording just my third episode with a guest you, you might remember, Mickey Agarwal. And Mickey is uh, an incredible, incredible human as you all saw on the show and it's not surprising that her husband is equally exceptional. And so after I recorded with Mickey, Andrew and I actually had the chance to hang out a little bit and I learned more about what he was up to. Um, Andrew is a student of Gestalt psychology, which he speaks about on the show and he explains uh, in more detail. And I learned quite a bit about it. He is a coach, a personal coach. He runs a consulting practice for businesses. But where we kind of go in here is the men's work uh, that he leads, you know, helping men to find answers, to find the language and the practices in their lives that can help them better serve others. And in service, I share with you this episode, and I say that I'll be attending his men's workshop at the end of March. It's in Los Angeles or outside of Los Angeles in Joshua Tree. The group is called the Junto. And I have included in the show notes a link to both the group, uh, the Junto men's group. It's wejunto.com, and also a direct link to the Splash That page for the upcoming men's retreat, which I'm so excited. And no matter Where you are in your life, no matter how strong you're feeling or the opposite, there's always room for personal growth and self-work. And so I cannot express how excited I am to be attending uh, the Junto at the end of this month. And so just touching on some of the additional topics that we covered, you know, we started with, I started with a question and the question was, what does it mean to be a man? You know, someone that leads men's work, I figured that Andrew would have a lot to say about that, and of course he does. We talk about the difference between shame and guilt, and Andrew eloquently defines each phrase and how they show up in our lives. Again, he explains Gestalt psychology. We discuss the responsibility of men in relationships, how sometimes it's best just to let go of relationships, how we're all showing up for one another. How we can feel good by making others feel good. He explained to me a little bit about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how, even in schools, they're still teaching it wrong. Because at the end of his life, after meeting Viktor Frankl, who's also one of my inspirations, Maslow changed the pyramid. And the highest form of living is no longer, according to Maslow, self actualization, but instead self transcendence, finding meaning through service. We talk about one of my favorite subjects uh, as a podcast host, this comes up a lot for me and as a speaker, the imposter syndrome and how you can counter the imposter syndrome by being high value for everyone and showing up, asking questions, being curious, expressing to others how awesome they are and to offer your support. And then finally, I drop in with Andrew about his family life, uh, which I find to be incredible. He he and Mickey share so much of themselves online with others and through their partnership and their parenting, I think there's a lot to be learned. So that's really it for me. There's more information in the show notes. I just cannot, cannot, cannot express how excited I am to continue this journey, how excited I am and grateful that I am. Like, holy shit, we're alive, right? I am so grateful for this miracle of life. I am so grateful for all of you to continue to tune into this show and hear the words of these people that I have the privilege of, of connecting with in person. I'm so fucking ready to serve all of you to the best of my ability, and I promise you that. That is why I'm here. It doesn't matter if there's one person listening, if it's my mom, which she might be listening. It doesn't matter who it is. I'm here for you. I also have an email. It's mark, M-A-R-C, at the lookuppodcast.com Reach out. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you learned from this show. Tell me who I should have on. Tell me where I'm fucking up. It doesn't matter. Just reach out. Connection is so important. Community is so important. I am here for you. You are loved, you are supported, and you are perfect exactly as you are. And if you listen through to the whole episode, you'll get context of where that phrase comes from. I learned it from Andrew, actually, and I continue to learn so much here, but one of the greatest things that I learned is just how important it is to set the intention of service in all that we do. And so... Without further ado, as one of my favorite podcasters, Sam Harris, says, I bring you Andrew Horn. All right. So, Andrew, thank you for coming on Look Up. Really (laughs) glad to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me. My first adventure to Culver City. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's not bad, right? What do you think?
1: I well, I gotta, I gotta do like a a bird like scooter around the hood and check it out afterwards. But <laughs> so far I'm enjoying it and you know sitting in front of Cat City behind me. Is that okay? Yeah, we've Excuse
0: Kitty me. City. Yeah, we've got we've got a couple of cats in the house and <laughs> and they're more than just cats. They're like twenty and thirty pounds. Yeah, dude. We're looking at Big Boy right now. Gotta, like, I'll, I'll snap know, a photo me. in the show links. A mini bobcat. Yeah, he's huge. Um, so I wanted to just, uh, to just dive in immediately. Um, you know, I'll, I'll leave uh, an intro ahead of the show, but I guess the first question I wanted to ask is like, what does it mean to be a man? Uh, what does it mean to be a
1: man? I think that, uh, the way that I approach that question personally, and the way that I approach that, uh, at our men's weekends, at our men's groups, um, is with the the foundational truth that what it means to be a man. I mean, biologically, it means that you have some very specific equipment and kind of uh, biology that, that identifies you as a man culturally. But then when we think about the more spiritual identification of a man, um, what it means to be a man is whatever you say it means. And so what I do is we don't create some sort of rigid identification of what it means to be a man and what are masculine qualities, but what I will challenge myself to do over and over again. in the men that we work with is to identify for themselves. What does it mean to be a man and the identity of man, the identity of masculine is just one component of, of who we think of ourselves as, you know, it's like I identify as a straight male, as a white male, I have an identification of my socioeconomic status, of Mm. my nationality. So there are all these different identities. And for each one of those, those identities have oftentimes this subconscious impact on our behavior, basically on how we express ourselves. And so, you know, I think that what I think it means to be a man is just that my biology identifies myself as, as man and I don't really have any personal aspirations necessarily to be a good man, because I've almost like transcended the identity of man, or I tried to, to human, and then mm-hmm. to kind of like this spiritual I, which is something that I, I cultivate much more based off of values and morals. It's, you know, so uh, what does it mean to be a man? I I don't I don't necessarily care about that question anymore it doesn't drive who i who i try to be and how i try to express myself in the world and i think that that's the power of that question in and of itself is that the more time we allocate to exploring it the more capable we are of transcending it altogether and cultivating a deeper more spiritual androgynous sense of being that's based on more important things like values morals and so that's that's kind of one of the reasons that's how i approach the the question what does it mean to be a man
0: I guess in follow up to that, do you believe that there are any uh, uniquely, I guess you you kind of separated the distinction between masculine and man. Yeah, So maybe we can dive into that and then I would ask, are there any attributes or qualities of an individual that are uniquely? manly quote unquote or uniquely masculine and yeah. and what's the difference
1: totally you know i would say that so again when we look at um, masculinity like a rough definition of how we can think about masculinity is they are the uh characteristics traits and expectations that we associate with someone who identifies as male so again when you say like what does it mean to be a man like roughly like i, I literally translate that as I identify with the gender of man, and Mm. so like, mean, and when we think about the difference between man and masculinity, um, you know, being a man is someone who identifies with the gender of man. Being, you know, a woman is someone who identifies with the gender of female. And when we think about masculinity, when we think about femininity, those are much more of the energetic behavioral associations that we have with someone who identifies as a man, someone who identifies as a female. And I would say that, you know, again, while these are subjective and, and ever evolving, the idea of masculine, the idea of modern masculinity is kind of an oxymoron because masculinity and femininity are always an articulation of whatever those expectations, traits, and behaviors are in this moment. So it's, it's a, it's a subjective association with those behaviors. And so, you know, are there specific behaviors that I would associate more with the masculine than the feminine? Certainly, but it doesn't mean that they are uh, exclusive to the gender. And I think that one of the things that's so powerful about exploring masculine and feminine traits is the idea that oftentimes it provides men the opportunity to identify behaviors that they they seek to express on both sides. Mm. And so one of the exercises that I'll oftentimes do with our our men on our retreats is I'll have them basically take out a sheet of paper and um, on the paper, I'll have them kind of run a line down the middle and then they'll put a horizontal line through as well. So they have four quadrants. And then basically what I'll have them write on the top is on the left, it says masculine, on the top right, it says feminine. And then in the four quadrants, it says, positive, positive, negative, negative. Mm. And basically I have them go free form. What are the masculine traits, characteristics, and behaviors that are positive? What are the masculine traits, qualities, and behaviors that are negative? And so you will have people just making these subconscious associations that they already have there with these types of behaviors. And what will oftentimes come out of this exercise is that people have a lot of these really pejorative understandings of the feminine as weak, as nurturing, as motherly, and the masculine they have as aggressive, as domineering, mm. as whatever these might be. But then when they look at positive, you know, they may, con- they may look at confident, at protective. For women, they may look at connective, emotional. And when we take the time to unearth our subconscious associations of what is masculine, what is feminine, it allows us to understand that, you know, a healthy expression of being is one that is more fluid that allows for the possibility of expressing whatever is real in us and not seeking to conform ourselves to any sort of rigid gendered identity. And I think that what happens is, you know, this is, again, I can speak from my personal experiences um, for so many men there was pressure to conform their actions at a young age to this, this rigid limiting uh, version of what it meant to be a man. And this was the the man who was strong. This was the man who was unemotional, would not cry. This is the man who did not need to be helped. You know, this is the man who was always confident, didn't share anxieties or insecurities, just so many other things. And what happens is like when we seek to fit a mold to, be accepted by society, which is again, like this fundamental need that we all have to be accepted. Um, we sacrifice parts of ourselves. And so, you know, again, I think that exploring masculinity, exploring manhood is ultimately interesting to me because it's the more that we understand about these subconscious beliefs and these, these rigid roles that oftentimes we are acting into without even being aware of it, more that we can understand those consciously Mm -hmm. the more capable we are of just expressing ourselves authentically of who we are beyond those labels beyond those rigid gender roles and ultimately when we do that i think that you know everybody wins
0: so a lot there as well (laughs) Um, thank you um so i'm thinking of like the don draper archetype of totally. you know of a man yeah. um, and and all the things that come along with that and in your description of kind of the traditionally masculine not sharing feelings etc I have this sense and I'd like to explore with you that the um, the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction at least in some of the communities that that we participate in um, in which you know it's becoming more difficult to express, some of those masculine tendencies because the subjective um, label on these, the masculine tendencies that might have been perceived as the positive positives that you mentioned earlier yeah. are now being relabeled as negatives. So words like mansplaining, right? Like for someone that's sensitive to the other gender, you know, it, it almost, it almost makes one not want to share because it's like, oh, am I just mansplaining by sharing my ideas? So how do you feel about the pendulum kind of swinging in the opposite direction from this is what it means, this is what it meant to be a man. It's like embodied in all these mass, quote unquote, masculine characteristics yeah. to now like those characteristics are actually subjectively negative and need to be kind of put on the back burner.
1: I think I think that again, you know, when there are these types of cultural swings, as you put it, that in some cases, like there will be like a, an overcompensation that needs to be addressed. But again, if we just look at kind of the, the freedom of women to express themselves, to be taken seriously in professional settings, in public discourse, it's, you know, you, you, they didn't have that for, for so much of modern history. No. And so the idea of kind of bringing an acute awareness to like I think that the term of, of mansplaining is counterproductive and I want to talk about that but the the awareness of the conduct of men in you know these these diverse contexts is helpful because for so long it's we we prioritize the the the, the expression of, of again just white men mm. um, basically kind of like in in the public domain and so the awareness to that I think makes a lot of us, makes me uncomfortable sometimes expressing myself because there is, you know, increased scrutiny. And so while I think that, you know, in some ways that can muzzle discourse because people become afraid, which is not healthy because people then suppress things that they are feeling as opposed to being able to bring what they are feeling, their concerns, their opinions kind of into the open where they can be discussed, where people can truly evolve. So I think that there is a, a middle ground that is it's healthy, that men are being challenged to become more considerate with their communication, to consider others in new ways. And at the same time, I think that where there are so many people who feel as though they have been oppressed and they very well may have been at the hands of men, whether that be economically, whether that be kind of in their families their personal freedoms. And so they they associate, uh, I saw a great quote recently and it said that uh, men are not the patriarchy. Mm. And basically what they're saying is like, anytime that you associate an individual man with the oppression that you may have experienced at the totality of all men, you limit who that man can be in conversation with you. And so the idea of, you know, mansplaining this idea that like this person is responsible for his entire gender in conversation with you, when he disagrees or shuts something down, is counterproductive to true discourse and connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that something that you know we can do as as conscious, kind of heart centered leaders as men, is to prioritize really hearing other people before we seek to be heard. And that's one of the things that we really kind of focus on with a lot of our men is. So much of our uh, of our focus is on helping men and giving them a platform to really feel their feelings and express those transparently and powerfully. And the way that we do that is first by taking an honest interest in the the feelings and needs and desires of others first. And by doing that, by taking an interest in what others are feeling, we create the space where, where ours deserve to be received as well. And so, so, yeah, that's kind of how I think about, you know, the... The, the swing and some of the uh, the real kind of just scrutiny that you see on, on male behavior because of things like the Me Too movement and uh, some other things that are happening. But uh, my, my worry is, again, is just kind of the the emphasis on, uh, you know, some of, like, the, the super righteous kind of liberal right and mm. public shaming and no kind Can, of like... The cancel culture. The cancel culture that, again... Um, you know, time that we are shaming someone, it's important to recognize that shaming will oftentimes elicit a, a reaction. If you are shaming someone like you are bad, you are a bad person um, that you can get someone to go away. You can get someone to shut up. But ultimately, shame is never a sustainable source of behavior change. When people are shamed, um, it only creates resentment. It's the only thing that can truly lead to kind of sustainable change in other people is is leading with love and actual connection and helping people be heard. And so I think that, you know, the most powerful leaders are those who lead from a place of love and connection and seeking to understand people, especially those with whom they disagree with, especially with those who may trigger them or upset them or have opinions that are different than them. And those are the leaders. And the people that i think we most need today and that i'm most personally drawn to myself
0: so you brought up this idea of shaming and i think um it's a word that comes up a lot in conversation these days for me um shame guilt i like to kind of go deeper on on these these words like how do you define shame that's a
1: great Great question. And um, it's something that we often talk about in our men's group is uh, because a lot of times like how we'll work with men in process group is we'll just basically kind of create a space and we'll allow men to kind of check into his body. What is he feeling like? What is the sensation you feel in your body? What's the emotion behind that? And, you know, two two of the emotions that will oftentimes come up is the idea of shame or guilt and the articulation of shame and guilt that have most connected to me. Um, is the idea that uh, guilt is when your actions are out of alignment with your own expectations for yourself. So Mm -hmm. when I say something that is out of alignment with how I want to conduct myself with my partner, Mickey, Mm -hmm. I feel guilty about that. You know, when I don't give someone uh, a report for the week that I had committed to giving to one of my employees, I feel guilty about that. Shame is when... I have a sexual desire that is met by someone saying that's gross. Shame is when the public expectation or understanding of my actions is out of alignment with who I know myself to be. So guilt is this internal understanding of like a misalignment, right? My actions were out of alignment with my own expectations. Shame is when the public perception is out of alignment. So this person sees me differently than I know myself to be. And, you know, another helpful understanding of shame is like oftentimes the way that shame is expressed um, is rather than speaking to someone's action of like, hey, this thing that you did was bad is you are bad. Yeah. And I think that one of the one of the simplest things that people can do, and this is kind of an iteration of nonviolent communication, is if you are trying to. Connect with people deeply. If you are trying to cultivate change in other people's, is to just throw your your hyperbolic, um, all-encompassing judgments of people's behavior by the wayside and speak to the actual actions that people are doing, which is, you know, so often we see this in romantic partnerships, but it's like, you never give me compliments. It's so you never acknowledge any of the effort that I do. And it's like, well. Is that true? Like, never. i never do that, ever. But it's like, as opposed to when you did this, it made me feel this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, oftentimes shame is speaking to who somebody is. And when we speak about who somebody is, it shuts them down. It's like, if I'm sitting here across from you and I'm like, Mark, it's like, you are X. Mm-hmm. If I qualify the entirety of your being it takes away and strips you of so much of your agency to be seen and to be received for who you are because I've just made this gross, hyperbolic exaggeration about who you are. And so it's so uh, defeating for other people to have that experience. And so as a just through the lens of communication, one of the most powerful things we can do to remove shame from our lexicon is to remove those types of judgments and try as much as possible to speak to the specific acts and transgressions that we experience. Mm. Whenever we do that, we are going to be more effective at helping people to actually acknowledge those things as opposed to maybe in the moment shutting up because they feel bad, but ultimately it leads to resentment and, and disconnection. So shame, shame and guilt is a really powerful yeah. construct to understand.
0: So just kind of running back, it sounds like guilt comes from a misalignment of expectation within self. Yeah. And shame comes from misalignment of self from outside perception. External
1: forces, Yeah.
0: And I'm so, um, a couple of things came to mind from that. That was yeah. awesome. Uh, the first is I'm, I'm reminded of Gandhi in his description of um, if somebody's sick, right? Like right now we're in this time with the coronavirus and you know, there's a lot of sick people out there and who knows where that's leading. But it's somebody's sick. You don't blame the sick person. For their sickness, you don't. the The person is not the enemy; it's the disease that's the enemy, and so is the same for all human behavior. It's not the individual that is bad or, or evil; it's the behavior, it's the action, it's the it's potentially the idea that that was evil or or harmful. And so he he didn't you know he didn't try to fight the person; he tried to fight the infliction, the the disease, which I think is um is super important in what in the language that you're describing uh, of when you do this, I feel yeah. rather than you are, you know, you're an asshole or <laughs> whatever, which yeah. we hear so often. Yeah. Um, also the next thing that came up for me in that is how important is language, um, in, in men's work and in, in all kind of personal work, language definitions, you know, proper speech.
1: Yeah. You know, when you speak about proper speech, you know, I think that I think about it in, in a couple of different frames. Tell me which one you're speaking about. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in today's climate, I think that there is an element of kind of like language policing and basically people being conscious of like how we are speaking mm. to
0: accommodate kind of like the. So that's, stadium. that's definitely not what I mean. Okay. I don't mean like politically correct speech. I mean like how, like how important is, is it to have, um, to have the to, not the right, but to ha- to define certain words, i.e., shame, guilt, and also, you know, the the subtle different. Like what you just described was this subtle difference in in a reaction to someone's behavior yeah, totally. versus saying you are. So this is this. Yeah, totally. Your action made me feel.
1: So I would I would say that what. What uh, my my personal kind of like brand of of men's work and like yeah. what I really hope to bring to the space is this focus on language and communication. It's basically the idea that. I like to think of of men's work, not as a personal act of evolution and transcendence, but as one that's deeply grounded in service of others and the communities that we care about. And so to translate the awareness and wisdom and benefits that we receive from feeling our feelings, from connecting and supporting other men, to take responsibility for integrating that into our lives and our relationships, the tool that we need to focus on is communication. And I think that you know it all starts by. Um, yeah, I'm a student of of gestalt communication and gestalt awareness practice, and the whole idea of can of, you yeah totally
0: yeah I was going to ask if you could define that yeah, for so, me and for for the audience totally.
1: So I'm happy that you did. So gestalt communication, gestalt awareness practice are derivatives of gestalt therapy, mm. and gestalt therapy was uh, founded by. Uh, Fritz Perls and several other therapists in the 1950s. And so the practice was really cultivated at Esalen. And it was, uh, you know, deeply ingrained in the heart of the human potential movement. And so, the human potential movement is, you know, basically kind of like on the heels of the Beatnik generation and people like Ram Dass and mm-hmm. Alan Watts and Rest people, who, people are, who are gathering in at like Esalen, which is where Fritz Perls cultivated the foundation.
0: Esalen's table. in north, uh, a space in Northern California. It's yeah, es- Esalen place. is
1: this really legendary. Uh, retreat center mm-hmm. in Northern California. What about like an hour or two north of San Francisco or south?
0: I'm I'm not, I'm not sure. I've never been. Okay, well, well like to go. I have
1: never been either. But so this where <laughs> the practice is cultivated. And one of the really interesting things to to understand about uh, Gestalt therapy and how it uh, differed from the the most recognized therapeutic modality of that time was psychoanalysis. So in psychoanalysis is, is Sigmund Freud's creation and, you know, like psychoanalysis. So what's happening in the mind and then analyzing what it means. And so Freud was, was kind of a fucked up dude. I mean, he was a a drug addict. He had these, he was a a A
0: very particular drug as well.
1: (laughs) And so so he, he was a Holocaust survivor. He had seen uh, many of his, his colleagues and his family members murdered in the Holocaust. and you know he's he's on record talking about the need for a therapeutic modality like psychoanalysis and saying that um, he's also the father of the subconscious. And so he believed that humans were fundamentally not in control of their, their decision-making capabilities. It's that there are these subconscious urges, fears, and desires that would always imprint onto what they did and ultimately lead them to uh, express really terrible behaviors like you see in like the Holocaust. And so he's on record talking about therapy is that basically that um, the goal of this was to put controls around people and around society. So they would not express these subconscious impulses that they were not in control of. Mm. And it was this idea of kind of controlling people, like putting kind of like berries around them so that these really bad things wouldn't happen. Mm. And the way that, um, fritz pearls approached gestalt therapy was the idea is that people are not inherently bad Um, people are not basically beholden to these subconscious impulses he said that people are never given an opportunity to express the totality of their emotional experience and what happens is that when people do not express the totality of their emotions They suppress those emotions. And what happens is over time, when we suppress those emotions, they can they can end up in undesired behaviors, whether that's me like slamming a door, getting into a fight when I'm drunk or something awful like, you know, the Me Too movement and these types of, you know, kind of like sexual transgressions and things like that. And so he basically said that the the anecdote was not basically analyzing people's minds and putting these confines around them, but it was actually providing a platform where they could safely explore and express the totality of their experience. And that it was in that expression of these emotions that they would process them. They would release them. They would learn what it is that they need to actually integrate that into their life and to you know, be much more capable of consciously controlling their behaviors. And so, um, you know, back to Gestalt and kind of like what how it empowered me is Gestalt and in the first training that I ever did at the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland, um, I, I for the first time in my life, I just gave myself to some of the simple principles of gestalt. And three of the core ones would be authenticity, curiosity, and the here and now, the present moment. And mm. so it's the idea of like even right now, it's so ingrained in my psyche, it's kind of what I bring into every social situation. It's so authenticity. What am I thinking and feeling? Appreciating that as real and valid and deserving of a voice giving it a transparent voice curiosity What do I want to understand about you and Mm -hmm. seeking to understand you and myself at the deepest level possible and being in the here? And now what's happening right now not worried about what's happening in the future. I'm not worried about what's happening in the past and it's It's all about experience over analysis that if we're just with what's Mm -hmm. happening right now that we're gonna be able to learn from that experience, we're gonna be able to actively process some of those subconscious emotions that we hold on to. And so, what Gestalt does is, you know, in this context that we create with men, is that it provides a safe container where men can express with totality whatever it is that they're experiencing. And what we also do is the longer that they are able to sit with these emotions and not need to put words behind them or not need to rush to solve something that they identify as a negative emotion, like sadness or shame, but just to be with it. They increase kind of the their lexicon and their their capabilities to say what it actually is, to identify with it. So how important is language is that, you know, earlier we were having a conversation, right? About, you know, we don't need to go into it, but we were having a conversation. Go ahead. And you said, in, and you, you answered with, I don't know. Hmm. And right after, I don't know, there's probably like a two second pause and then you carried on on a different track. And it's the idea that, you know, for, for so much of our lives when we find ourselves in these moments of like not knowing it's, we have a feeling that is undesirable or that we don't fully understand. And so then we fill that space with other stories and things that we've thought before and other explorations. And so when we, we have space to just sit and be with our emotions, and just say, like, you know, it's like, so what do I feel right now? What sensations are in my body? What is the emotion that is behind that? Trying our best to identify what is that emotion. And there's all sorts of tools that we can use to give that emotion a voice, to speak from the emotion versus our head of saying, you know, so if that emotion had a voice, what would it be saying right now? To actually identify with our emotions more deeply and saying, if that emotion had a color, does it have a shape? What happens if you allowed it to be fully expressed? What would it do? What does it need? And so simply creating a space where men have more time to connect with their emotions and explore them, they develop a new lexicon to consciously Mm. uh, integrate them into their communication. Because so often what happens is because we don't have the words to articulate what an emotion is, where it's coming from, we're just basically subconsciously allowing that to dictate our behavior. Mm. You know, we're unaware of it. Uh, this guy, Owen Marcus, a really great facilitator uh, for an organization called Every Men, He has this great analogy of uh, basically like a beaver dam. And so basically he, not a beaver dam, sorry. It's a, so imagine for a second a river. Mm. Okay. And so uh, you are a, a massive rock in the middle of this river. And so you imagine that basically sticks that are flowing down this river are emotions. And so here you are, you're rocking a river, and then you see this stick that's coming down the river. And so this stick is some anger because your girlfriend told you that she was gonna go out with you tonight, you're gonna have a great night, and then the last minute she bailed because she wanted to go out with her friends. And so you've got some anger and then you've got some sadness in there, but you're like, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. So basically what happens is that this stick comes down and it hits you, but you're like, you know what, it's, it's fine, whatever. Like, we don't need to deal with it. And so that stick just kind of stays there. And then the next day you go to work and your boss is like, hey, I need you to stay for the whole weekend. And now you're like, you're sad and you're angry again, but you have to keep doing more work. So this stick comes down and hits you near the rock in the middle of the river. So now you have two of these sticks that are here. And so what happens, because you never took the time to just consciously actually process those emotions that were hitting you, is that when new sticks come, they're basically starting to pile up on you. Mm. And now what happens is that when a new emotion comes, it's not just interacting you. But it's not just interacting with you, it's intertwined with all these other emotions that you haven't actually processed. Mm-hmm. So what happens over time is it becomes more and more difficult to interact with what's happening in the moment because that emotion is interacting with all these unprocessed emotions. Mm-hmm. So to try and triangulate and actually deal with something in the moment becomes more and more difficult. And for so many guys, there's so much of this unpacking. Of just allowing themselves to just sit with what it is that they're really feeling. Like, what are the things that they have not processed? Whether that's something that they have with their father, you know, an ex girlfriend, um, work things that aren't wearing out, whatever that is. And so, you know, the more capable that men become of sitting with their emotions, speaking powerfully about them, creating space for other men to do that, the more capable they are of integrating their emotional experience consciously into their communication. And how important is communication? I think that again, one of the things that I oftentimes say to, to our men is I don't give a fuck about <laughs> your authentic expression of self. It's like, because if you're just aware of your feelings and just spouting those off transparently and authentically, cool, good for you. But also there's like, that's, it's kind of like the, the tendencies of a narcissist hmm. of just like, here's what I'm feeling and I'm going to share it because it's real and valid and it matters. And what I believe is that if you do not pair the authentic and transparent expression of your own state, your own feelings with an interest and desire to understand the feelings and sensations and desires of others, that it's really just not valid and counterproductive. And so what we teach our guys as they're going through our system and learning how to sit with their emotions, learning how to articulate them more powerfully is also how do you have challenging conversations by actually inviting in a space where other people can identify with what it is that they're feeling, what it is that they need creating space to have challenging conversations because we're not going into these places and saying, I'm really, I'm really angry at you, but it's like, Hey, um, you know, I wanted to create a space where we can have a conversation and, and talk honestly about how we're feeling. And to say, I wanted to ask you a question of like, you know, how are you feeling about the relationship right now? I'm like, Hey, we got in this fight last week. I wanted to see, uh, what you're feeling right now and to actually receive them and to do that, you know, and that simple shift allows so many of our guys within the process of two days to have conversations that they've been putting off for, for so long because, you know, they they don't know how to articulate what it is that they're feeling. They have stories about how other people will respond to them, how they won't be able to hold it. Um, but ultimately it is our responsibility to facilitate um, authenticity, and and transparency in our relationships. And one of the things that we always say to our guys is like, if you're not being honest in your relationships, how could you possibly expect your partner to be? And it's like, and we're the ones who are fortunate enough, and not everyone is, to to be at a retreat, to be in a men's group. And so if you're not being honest, how could you possibly expect your partner to be? It's on you. It's our responsibility to do that. And when we can create a space for others to be Seen, heard, valued, um, then the space is created where we can receive that as well. So I mean, communication is, is fundamental to to the integration of this these practices in the world in a way where it's truly serving others. And um, I mean, that's where that's where I geek out then is is really understanding the dynamics of authentic communication and and how to how to just bring that that into the world.
0: I've got many questions and a few different directions that this could go Um, I want to ask you a personal question about this
1: yeah
0: Um, how do I phrase this in your um, relationships Mm -hmm. do you find that you are still maintaining friendships with men women whoever that that don't have these tools um, available to them, or you know, like how are you interacting with those that don't have the the language, the communication skills? Uh, I'll just give a, pers- a personal example Please. here. You know, I just got back from a bachelor party. Um, I pro there's probably no threat of any of them listening to this podcast, but you know, sixteen of my fraternity brothers from college, which I graduated 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of communication between a large group of men like that, in my experience, is often um, sarcasm yeah. and, uh, and you know, picks, like little, little yeah. digs at each other. Totally. And, you know, I guess the reason I ask is because over time do you start to you know, as you, as you continue to practice this for yourself, one, I'm, I'm imagining that it expands out beyond just you to your close friends and, and it has a ripple effect, but also do you start to lose people? Do they start to fall off because they, they aren't, they aren't ready for this form of communication. And how do you feel about that? If that's happened to you, uh, and, and are you able to stick with them as well? If they're continuing not to be able to, um, you know, to have these kind of authentic conversations.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, I oftentimes talk about developing relationships and friendships specifically that are in alignment with who you are today. And I think um, a lot of times people find themselves in these relationships that are holdovers from uh, parts of their lives and most importantly, past versions of themselves. And it's these people are connecting with a version of you that is out of alignment with who you know yourself to be. And what I would say again to people who are listening is that you are responsible for creating the relationships that you really want. And to shift the dynamic that is available to you in these friendships with your fraternity brothers, um, it's your responsibility to model that first. And what I mean by that, it's understanding what is the level of depth that I seek with these guys that I'm with? What are the questions that I want to ask about them? What, it is, what is it that I want to be sharing in these mm. kind of containers? What are the things that I don't want to be doing? And ultimately, it's you create the space for other people to meet you there when you go first. And I think that so often people hold back you know, some of these inquiries to go deeper, to talk about struggle, to talk about purpose, to talk about challenge and relationship because we have this internal dialogue that is kind of mapping out all of the worst case scenarios of like, these guys are gonna think that I'm weird. These guys are gonna go deeper and make fun of me. I'm gonna get ostracized by the group. I'm gonna make people uncomfortable. We make up all of these stories, which again, we can talk about stories, which is a really important aspect of how to communicate authentically. But um, also what's happening is that you are sacrificing your authentic expression of self to appease these stories of how other people will respond. And what I say is you are actually stripping them of the, the possibility and uh, the possibility that they are actually just waiting for permission to go deeper as well, that they are just waiting for permission to break out of this rigid construct of how they can conduct themselves. But ultimately it's up to us to, to model that behavior, And it's only when we authentically express and model the type of communication that we want in our relationships that we can get an actual response and knowing about how capable they are of meeting us or not. It's because if we are just appeasing the social norms of our groups, if we're having conversations at a surface level, because that's where they're at right now, like ultimately you're, you're never going to give them an opportunity to connect with the real version of you. And it's your responsibility to put that version forward and then in reality, see how do they respond. But what I oftentimes see happens is when people cross this threshold and they say, you know what, life is fucking short and I am done appeasing others and suppressing this authentic, true version of myself. When they finally come to that point, and most of us do get to that point at at some time in our life, you know, hopefully sooner than later, when you put that forward, if you have the experience of not being met by these people, it becomes abundantly clear that it's time to move on. And when we when we are courageous enough to release the relationships that are no longer serving us, we create space to bring in the ones that are generative, that
0: are serving the version of ourselves that we really are. Why does it feel so selfish to me to leave people behind like that? In and. I think it's selfish of you to not
1: to not bring your full self into those conversations. I think it's selfish of you to hold back because of, you know, your desire to appease kind of the the social conduct of the group as it is right now, because I think that the greatest gift that you can give is bringing your authentic self into those conversations and giving them an opportunity to do the same thing. And it's like the idea, it's like if you're not being fully expressed in those relationships Why should we feel that they are either? And so it's like, you know, when it comes to the dynamic of, I think that the articulation here of of friends, and I was a fraternity guy as well, you know, like 125 person fraternity at Virginia Tech, massive. And I make the distinction because I very consciously transitioned out of some friendships. Um, I think that a very important articulation of this is the idea of you have your brothers and your sisters, Mm. and then you have your friends. And your brothers and your sisters are the people who have been there for you, deeply supported you at specific stages of your life. And so you want to make yourself available to them in some capacity so that you can support them if they need that. But your friends are the people who are bringing the things, experiences, conversations that are really generative and rewarding for you right now. Mm. And you can have some of these relationships of brothers and sisters and say, it's like, if anything really happened, like I would be there for them but not making time for that. And I think that the idea of being selfish is like we we deserve relationships that are that are generative and fulfilling and rewarding. And so where we're spending our time, um, you know, the more time that you spend with people that are ultimately kind of feeding the version of where you're at today, I just have this fundamental belief that that's going to end up being better for the world, better for these people who are meeting where you're at. And like halfway relationships are... Are not, are not really serving anybody. So it's a challenging one, but I think that making these decisions to let go, there's a great, there's a great concept I got from my, my friend Matisse. She's a therapist and she says, people who are at rock bottom are so much more likely to make a change in their life because they don't have anything they're afraid of losing. And she said, it's people who are just dissatisfied with their lives that are the ones who are most, who are the least likely to make a change. And it's because they don't believe that they are deserving of something greater. And so people are holding on to that, which they don't even really want because they don't think they can have something better. And so it's this idea of like, what are you holding on to? You know, we're focused on relationships. right now what are the relationships that you're holding on to that you don't really even want that you don't value because you're worried that you won't have something else on the other side? And I think that there is an element of courage in that. And we can speak practically about how to develop new relationships that are generative to the current version of you, which I think is an important aspect and oftentimes gives people the, the courage to actually start transitioning some of those relationships, but it's a powerful concept to, to consider in our relationships. And I think, you know, with me, I have, I, I would just talk about it even with, with my brother, like you know, who's someone who
0: we've had a very cordial friendship for a very long time. Your, your actual brother. My actual brother. Yeah. That yeah. so was—it's so funny because I was going to ask you about family as yeah, well, that's because I, that's such a even deeper. I give sense of like leaving, leaving, leaving the bird's nest, so to speak, man? and it's, creating your own family, which I'd love to talk to you about as yeah, well. Yes, we it could go forever. I
1: and one of the things that I've again learned from Gestalt is all I can control is is how I am showing up in situations. Mm. And I have become so deeply committed to being authentic in my expression of self, my curiosity, Mm. desire to understand others. And I bring that into every interaction, just transparently. And as I've done that with my family, it's brought my brother and I's relationship to a level where I ask him all sorts of questions that he he would never been asked before about his his insecurities and his challenges with his family and so many other things. And it, it... he was able to meet me there. I'm like one of the people in his life who he gets to have these conversations with. I literally this morning invited my mom to a gestalt training in Los Angeles. Yes. Like, Let's go and do this because it's going to create a new paradigm for us to communicate and connect with one another. And I think that so often, you know, when you, when you have this idea that people do not have the lexicon or the capacity to meet you kind of for where you're currently at, a lot of times transformational experiences can be a really powerful um, kind of culprit to to transition and facilitate a shift in your relationship whether that is like going to a transformational weekend whether that is like going to uh, some sort of like spiritually focused kind of like event that i think facilitates a transition in how you can interact with one another and you yeah. see each other interacting with themselves is that you don't necessarily have to do it on your own it's a lot of times Even with my mom, is like going to a training that's two days and now it's like, oh, we have these new appreciation tools that we can use to connect, which is a powerful thing to consider. I love this
0: so much. I love this so much. I, um, (laughs) I, so I'm called to ask a couple of things. Um, the first is continuing on this thread of selfishness. Yeah. Because um, you mentioned it earlier, and I want, I want to go back to it, how important it is, to have the differentiation between I'm authentically sharing my feelings and I'm being vulnerable and I'm just laying it all out there um, versus I'm doing that, but then I'm also creating space and allowing you to do the same totally. and in service. So I took a note on um, one of your previous podcast episodes, and you said I, I you were on a trip with your father. Mm-hmm. Um, And you had this kind of realization that if you wanted to feel good, that you could just concentrate on making other people feel good. Yeah. So I would like to kind of explore that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I just I this is from my own experience of when I existed in a time of my life, really through college and, and directly afterwards, I lacked any sort of sustainable fulfillment, sense of purpose or kind of confidence in my own value. And I had a lot of pleasure in my life. I had uh, a social group that was like very active. I was partying and I was with a lot of women. And so I had a lot of pleasure, but that was a roller coaster of kind of these quick hits of pleasure and then the depletion and going down again to this kind of foundational level of like, I'm not really connected to anything I care about. I don't believe in my <laughs> own value, and then I would have to have that kind of hit again of like the the party of the women, um, you know, the, the pleasure seeker, and so and I just got tired of it, and I, I just realized that on this conversation on this trip that I had with my father across country, I I took basically two months off before I was going to start a job in a just so happens to be the Trump uh, hotel in Towers, no way. Know, <laughs> and tower, um, and basically. On this trip, uh, I asked my dad a question about what he was proud of, uh, basically from his military service. I mean, I was an experimental test pilot, really decorated, and um, he talked to, for you know 30 minutes about his time in the military and the brotherhood he experienced and serving his country. And um, I was just like, wow, yeah, it's, I, I feel and hear the pride in your voice. And he looked back at me and he was like, what's the last thing you've done that you're proud of? And I realized in that moment that I just had nothing. I just sat there for 20 minutes and I was like, you know, I've won some intramural sports championships and planned some parties, but like proud of those things. I didn't really have a consistent period of my life where I was proud. And as I was sitting there, then I I had this moment of recollection where my junior year of college, I had spent two and a half months in Chicago volunteering for this children's nonprofit that helps young people with disabilities to play sports. And at the time, I was more excited by the fact that I had a fake ID, I could go to bars and I had like a fun group <laughs> to hang out with. That was what made that summer really kind of fun for me. But looking back, you know, flyer bombing North Beach and raising ten thousand dollars for an adaptive volleyball clinic. Getting kids to go water skiing who've never even seen a lake before, you know, yeah. cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, um, getting kids like with an array, in, uh, array of disabilities to go and play uh, baseball with the White Sox. Like, I looked back at the energy that I put forth consistently into this organization, and it just—I still felt this overarching, embodied sense of pride in what I had done because I was so directly aware of the the impact it was having on these. These kids and my dad just astutely looks back at me and he says, so why don't you just do that? And it was this idea, like in that moment of like, I I was so filled with uncertainty of what it was that I was going to do. And here was this thing that I had done for two and a half months that made me really proud that I still felt good about. And so kind of in that, that same frame that I talked about before, like the people who are most likely to make a change are the people at rock bottom because they don't have anything they're afraid of losing. You know, I was very fortunate of like, you know, I, I was okay to take off two months and didn't have to work right away. So I had some privilege in that regard, but also I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had this one thing, this sliver of truth that when I helped these kids, I was, I was fulfilled. And so that just led me on my path of like when I didn't feel a deep sense of self-worth, of value in myself, contributing so directly to the well-being of others showed me that I did have value undeniably. And for so many people who are asking themselves the question of what should I do with my life? Like what career track is going to be most rewarding? I think that oftentimes the much more valuable question to ask is how do you want to contribute? Is how do you want to help people? And, you know, I think that the the ways to think about this is, Um, Causes and community. So it's like, what is a cause, whether that is political, whether that is environmental that you're drawn to contribute to. If you look at a community, whether that is a fraternity, whether that is a a local neighborhood network, whether that is, you know, a a men's group or men's Mm -hmm. community, whatever that is, a community that you feel called to contribute to. um, Is that if you look at in your own life, Where is it that you struggled? Maybe your family was financially insecure growing up. You know, maybe you lacked confidence, uh, dealt with social anxiety. It's if you look at where you have struggled, where you had challenges growing up, coming of age, and just simply say, it's like, I'm gonna go and support people who might be enduring those similar challenges right now, finding a nonprofit that's doing work in those areas and contributing. Then I think that you have so much value to go and impact a cause and issue that directly impacted you and that if we want to feel good, if we want to be happy, mm-hmm. make someone else happy. It's the most direct path to it.
0: And also what, do, what would it. you say to someone that's like, but what about um, money, money, or, or what about this concept that I hear often in, in self, self-help groups and things of put your oxygen mask on first? Yeah. You know, it's like you're, can one be in a position to, to help and support others when we're not feeling when one is not feeling like stable or yeah, the best,
1: what I, what I would say is capable. That, yeah.
0: The, the
1: best version of you is the person who is deeply locked and engaged in the service of others is the concept of self actualization, becoming the best version of yourself by focusing on being the best version of yourself, is is a fallacy. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist, and there's literally like academic rigor behind this. So everyone knows Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. So it's like as you move up towards the top, um, you've got love, esteem, and then self actualization. Yes. And Maslow, what people don't know about this is Maslow formally and academically amended the hierarchy of needs towards the end of his career, and it's still taught incorrectly in schools, which is crazy. Because you can go and Google this. Just type in Maslow amended hierarchy of needs, and you'll find this.
0: Huh? I have the hierarchy of needs right above my desk. In my Do room. you really? Okay, cool. Unamended version. Well, I'm so happy that yeah. I can share this with
1: you <laughs> because it's a massive shift. Yeah. Um, and towards the end of his life, Maslow developed a relationship with Viktor Frankl. Hmm. Man Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. My favorite. And so when Maslow developed this relationship with Viktor Frankl, what became clear to him was that the peak expression of humanity was not the actualization of self. That actually, if actualizing the self is the peak, that it's a fallacy. Because as soon as you actualize the self, some new precipice or possibility would immediately be there. So you can't actually just actualize the self if that's your only goal. So he said that to truly actualize the self, you, you had to focus on something bigger, which is self-transcendence. It's that self-transcendence is when you are divinely connected to something greater than the self. And that can be a relationship. That can be a cause. That can be a community. Because it is only when our goal is bigger than ourself that we can actually uh, fulfill the self. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And so, and it's just what I've known to be true is that like we we grow in partnership. We grow when we are connected to purpose, something greater than ourselves. And so, like, take care of yourself. Be be healthy. Like, do what you need to do to to cultivate a foundation of of energy and well being that allows you to be of service sustainably. Like, I, I think that you know this is a trope within masculinity is the idea of. Of sacrifice is that like a traditional trope of masculinity? Give up what you want to support Sacrificing yourself to serve the family. And it's not. I think that we're moving into a time of sustainable service. Mm. Is sacrificing the self, you know, it's some for some people, it it is a, a noble act, but it is oftentimes unsustainable. And like, how can we even approach that idea of how do I serve these people sustainably? And there needs to be an element of how do I take care of myself and provide the foundation where I'm supported as well, because that will enable me to be of service to others. And so, I think that again, like it's just it grounds everything that we do. It is the the foundational force that transformed my own life's purpose was understanding mm-hmm. that that I could find happiness by making others happy, that I could find fulfillment by helping others to fulfill themselves. And so that that shift made it so much more accessible for me and, and so many of the people that I've worked with and people that I've, I've spoken to to do the same thing. It's, it's not what do I want to do, it's how do I want to contribute, is that that's the question to be asking mm. um, and ultimately will lead you on a path where when you are clear on how it is that you want to contribute, um, I, don't, I don't suspect that you connect with a sense of purpose or how you want to be of service and how you want to contribute and you can go and find a job that's paying you six figures to do that right off the bat. But what I always say to to young people and so many friends that are in the midst of career transition or selecting a career is you are not what you do professionally, you are what you do with your free time. And people are going to have obligations and responsibilities. They may have kids, uh, they may have family members that they need to support. And so certainly um, you you may have a, a, a need to go and and have some sort of job that's not ultimately rewarding or fulfilling. But however much time it is, however small, however significant, uh, you will have time that is yours. And how you allocate that to the things that you are truly connected Mm. to, passionate about, that are contributing to the world in a way you care about, the more time that you spend doing that, the more likely you are that you're going to be able to develop that into a career that provides you with the financial abundance that you want And, you know, ultimately, I think what's so powerful about even this idea of service and contribution is the, for for better or worse, like a lot of the most talented people coming out of university and who are younger do not go into the service nonprofit industries Uh uh, because they don't pay as well. And what that means is that there are so many opportunities to contribute and really take leadership on projects that are meaningful um, in some of these benefit corporations, nonprofit organizations. And so the ability to take on responsibility that cultivates your own skill, which then improves your own kind of propensity to make a lot of money um, is also hidden there. So that's just an added benefit of approaching kind of like life and career this way.
0: Mm. How long have you been on this journey um, of kind of self-transcendence or service Um, How long have you been doing this men's work? And then a follow up to that. uh, Were there moments when you felt like an imposter or were there moments that felt particularly challenging um, because you had developed certain skills and tools and certain conscious awareness that now perhaps made it even more difficult when you hit those roadblocks of like of, of self-centeredness or uh, of, you know, whatever. I I don't know that you actually experienced this, but just maybe flipping it from a question to my own personal experiences is I find that I have found that at certain steps in this, in this journey of life, as I become more conscious aware, consciously aware of the way that emotions are manifesting or the way that habits have formed in my life that I'd like to break through um. Some there's some like moments where I feel like I'm hitting like this wall, yeah. And I I see it and I know it, but I can't. You know, I can't get through it. Yeah. Um. Anyways, that's not necessarily what, a question, like, but I think I think
1: that the, probably the most interesting thing in that question that I'll that I'll key off on, at least for me, is is the idea of imposter syndrome and yeah. like what's allowed me to go kind of, through so many different phases of my career. Um. In terms of how long I've been on this journey, like when I talked about like that foundational understanding of service being the driving force that that gives me sustainable fulfillment energy to create, to overcome anxieties, to overcome challenge, because I'm I so clear on like why it matters, because it's everything I've ever done has been grounded in that principle of, of service, of how is this benefiting other people? And so much of my own perception of value has come from me articulating what is the value to others. So it's like when I sit with people at a men's retreat, what, what is the value that others have derived from this experience or that I believe you can derive from this experience. And then so my value in that space is, is kind of that, but the idea of imposter syndrome, if you think about this, so for anyone who desires to be not even an entrepreneur, but desires to accomplish like great things. If you think about growing, like going up the corporate ladder, if you think about starting a business at every single stage as you are getting larger, more notoriety, more money, more employees. You are going to be going beyond what it is that you confidently know how to do. Mm. So it's, you are constantly going to exist in a place of Shit, am I ready for this? You know what I mean? And so it's like right now, if you are basically in a place of getting ready to launch a Kickstarter and doing a a $25,000 campaign and you're like, am I really worth like $25,000? And then you have the founder of Slack who is about to raise $25 billion. And he's like, shit, am I really capable of doing this? It's the same question over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. The external circumstances are different. But what I think really differentiates some of the successful entrepreneurs is how they sit with that energy and how they respond to it. And so it's the idea that, think of that that concept, like the imposter syndrome is this idea of on my edge. It's like, am I pushing myself into new uh, foreign territory and challenges that I haven't experienced before? Mm. And I hope that you do that for the rest of your life. (laughs) What a gift to have new experiences, to be challenged, because that's how we grow. And so the idea of an imposter syndrome is, again, is this belief that our internal dialogue about what we are not will be found to be true. Because if I have this internal dialogue for so many people who say it's like that um, these people are going to think that I'm not smart. These people are going to think that uh, I'm a charlatan. These people are going to think that I'm a marketing asshole. And it's like what the imposter syndrome is basically that It's like that internal dialogue is going to be found true. Is that someone's going to validate what I've been saying to myself all this time. And so I think what is so important as it comes to the imposter syndrome is the idea of taking the time to look inwards and articulate our own value. And so much of our value is like, what is it that I have to contribute Yeah. is if I look at, so think about this as uh, with the imposter syndrome, um, you know, a lot of times people get anxiety in social situations, professional situations, where they find themselves paired with someone who they view as a high value person, um, which triggers anxiety in them because so many people question their own value in situations. So professionally, if you're going into the room with uh, an investor who very tangibly can give you money to fund a project, they're high value And you have to really be keen on, okay, what is my value to contribute to this situation? If socially you're at a restaurant and then someone sits down and it's a famous actor, you are like, oh, they're a high value person because they have crazy network and access to all these things. And so if I don't doubt, if I doubt my own value to contribute there, then I'm going to basically try and stack myself up and feel bad. And so the idea one of the most helpful exercises I think people can do is to take a moment to look in, and understand that for so many of us, we just equate value with the financial is the financial is like that. This person has access to a lot of money or that they've achieved a lot of money. And if I haven't done that, I have no value bullshit. It's, if we think about the type of value that we extract for people, someone is high value. If you learn from them, someone is high value. If they bring a specific energy to a space, that is comforting, inspiring, mm-hmm. supportive, useful. Someone I can derive value from someone if they have connections and community and access to people who are interesting, useful, inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. Certainly like the financial aspect of it, if someone who has access to, to financial means is there's there's power in, in money. And so that's also value, but taking the time to think about like what is the value that I have to contribute? And you know, for so many people, who don't think that they have value to contribute. This is one of the things that I, especially early on in my career that I looked at, I was like, how can I reach out to funders, to famous people that I want to support a nonprofit? It's like, I'm, I'm 24. I have a small, like $250,000 a year nonprofit. Um, but what you always have the opportunity to do with people uh, to add value is honestly, it's to be curious about others to be complimentary of like, if someone has impacted you, like telling them and like actually sharing appreciation with people is always appreciated. Uh, seeking to understand people and their experience makes them feel seen, which is valuable. Um, offering to support because you don't need to have any skills to offer your support to somebody. It's like any entrepreneur, any person that you really believe in. It's like, if you understand what it is that they're excited about, what it is they're working on, and you say, you know, if I can ever help with anything you have coming up, you just shifted the relationship. Like there's value to be given in there. That's so much of how I approach relationships early in my career was just offering my support, telling people why I thought they were awesome. And that dynamic as opposed to like asking for things right off the bat, yeah. fundamentally shifted the dynamic there and how I was able to reach out. But, um, and I think that the more time that we take to just acknowledge outside of these surface level transactional things of like my value to deliver is like, there's an element of just self-love here of, um, the idea of, you know, I will be good enough when I have achieved this thing. And if your mindset is one that is based on achievement, like I will be good enough. When I will be smart enough when I do this thing, if you just think about that, the more so than the achievement, you have a mindset that is focused on achievement. So if I have uh, an idea that I will feel really confident with successful entrepreneurs and famous people, when I have an exit with my company, when I raise my series a round, my series B, that's when I'll finally feel like i made it. Like I can like have a voice in this room. What will happen is I'll do that. I'll sell my company. But then what will happen is that same mindset that says I'll be happy when is still there. Hmm. And so it's just this foundational mindset that's now going to create another objective of like, Oh, but I'll be this when I achieve that. And so outside of the, the acquisition, the achievement mindset, what we need to be so focused on is just the appreciation of, man, like, here's why I love myself. Mm-hmm. Here are the things that I've already done. And like, oftentimes, just that shift from achievement to appreciation of oneself is actually what gives us the energy to go out there and be who we need to be in the world, to do the things that we need in business. And that's, that's oftentimes one of the things that I do with so many of the men that we work with is the idea of just giving them a moment together to acknowledge, like, who are you based off of what you've already done? Like, what are, what are the ways that you have helped other people? What are the challenges that you've overcome? Insecurities that you've transcended? Organizations that you've supported? And it's like, when we say like, oh, look at all these things. And we we acknowledge the feeling that's available by just shifting our focus there. Um, that you, you have value just because of, of who you are. <laughs> you know what I mean? And to, to honor that and to own that is such a big part of going into rooms and conversations um, to speak to that imposter syndrome. But again, you know, there's a, there's a Bruce Lee quote and he says, uh, he said, courage is not the absence of fear. Uh, courage is action in the face of fear. And I always love that because I speak mm-hmm. to a lot of people about social anxiousness, of like feelings of the imposter syndrome and shyness. And it's the idea that, that courage is not the absence of fear of the imposter syndrome. It's action in the face of it. And I think that it is a, a healthy impulse of oftentimes the, the frame that I have for people is like, if you feel like an imposter... If you're worried that your program doesn't offer enough value, this is a healthy impulse because you care about it. Now, if, if this impulse is something that is repeating over and over and over again, like there are therapeutic conditions, you know, of like therapeutic, like uh, of clinical, clinical anxiety, anxiety. Yeah. yeah. That deserve some like deeper attention. Totally. Uh, but just the presence of those insecurities, the presence of the imposter syndrome, it's it's healthy. And so much of, you know, I think what we can do is just develop positive systems to respond to it consciously um, as opposed to letting it hold us back.
0: <laughs> What's coming up for you? Uh, I'm like, I want to like drop mic because I feel like you just shared so much wisdom. And I'm just like, that's <laughs> like going to like short circuit some listeners and it might have short circuited me. But um, I know, I, I think that's, I think that's great. I mean, I the the achievement mindset, the I'll be happy when, it's so um so prevalent in our culture. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like it's like the wily e. coyote, you know, like it comes back and like presents itself in weird ways like um it, you know, if it's not about money, it's about something else. Yeah. You know, it's it's about uh I
1: have that that partner when I'm a part of that social group.
0: Yeah. yeah when I've achieved enlightenment, yeah. you know, and removed all desires from, from this material plane or yeah, whatever it totally. is. And so it's, uh it's definitely something, something to watch. I definitely, I really appreciate that. Um, I wanted to ask you about just kind of like your personal life a little bit, if you're willing to go there. Yeah. Like, totally. um, so, so Mickey came on the show. She was one of my first guests. That's actually where we met for the first time. Yeah. I mean, how important has has your marriage been in your own personal development?
1: The best the best way I can articulate that is um, when I married when I married Mickey. Well, Mickey and I got married basically like three days after hanging out at Burning Man. We've been together ever since. Her that was our like <laughs> spiritual marriage. When we officially did it, we we rented this sleepaway camp in upstate New York and we had 200 of our friends there. And so during our ceremony, when I was telling her, you know, what I'm committing to in this, this union and why I was choosing this union, I referenced this, uh, this sculpture. So I handed out uh, pictures. I had this picture printed out and it was a sculpture at Burning Man from probably two years ago. Um, (laughs) I have goosebumps talking about it. Hmm. And so the sculpture, if you can imagine it, is imagine probably about 40 to 50 feet tall. And it was this beautiful mirrored sculpture of two very fluid stick figures, but they were mirrored. So every aspect of their, their body and their face and their arms is mirrored and reflective, right? And so... These mirrored, beautiful, kind of androgynous-looking figures are holding one another uh, in this embrace, and that was the title of the piece. You have a photo of it. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I
0: think I think I know exactly what you're so talking you about. So, post a
1: photo of it so you can see it. But so what I so what I realized. <laughs> I'm show you. So this is when I was thinking about my vows. I saw this photo because it was our, our wedding was like a month after Burning Man, and when I looked at this photo, what I realized is that because of the way the sculpture was created, Mm -hmm. it was one solid structure. So they were fused together. Like there was no kind of like separateness there. So they had their arms kind of holding almost like eighth graders, like dancing, like a high school dance, like that's what they look like. And when I looked at the, the bodies in the face, what I realized is that because their exterior was mirrored, that while they look like two figurines, actually you can't look at one of them without seeing the reflection of the other on their exterior. Does that Mm. make sense? So there's two figurines, but because they're mirrored, if you look on the face of one, you're seeing the
0: reflection of the other. It's like a silver version of an Oscar, but broken into two people.
1: Imagine two Oscar statues holding each other other. in like silver, beautiful description. Yeah, exactly like that. It's gorgeous. And so what I realized is that while there are these two figures, they don't exist without the other one, and what I told Mickey is that, and I quoted this this idea of transcendence of that like, the the version I'm choosing this relationship again, and I will choose it over and over again, because I am so aware that the version of me that I want to be, the version of me that the world deserves, does not exist without prioritizing our union. And it was this idea that the version of me only that I want, that I, that that deserves to exist only evolves when I prioritize our union because it is in partnership that we grow. um, and you are the person who pushes me to that level. And I'm so sure of that, that I will continue to prioritize our union over, you know, the, this selfish kind of acquisition of uh, of wisdom and growth and all these other things, because I know that to, to reach the highest state is only possible prioritizing us. And it's like that I do not exist without us. And that's why I'm committing to us is that being in partnership with a woman who is as powerful Mm. and
0: and challenging and sexy and Mm. inspiring um, There's a great quote yeah. that I'm reminded of, which is brave is the man who loves a wild woman.
1: <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. I oftentimes say to so many of our guys that are doing work, I say, you know, date, if you really want to grow, date a powerful woman, you know, yeah. as they will hold you accountable. And I think that it is in intimacy that we grow. It is someone who is uh, someone who will hold us accountable and see that version of ourselves and, you know, what's so powerful, I think what I oftentimes say is to have a powerful, opinionated, emotional um, woman is been the greatest catalyst of growth in my own life. Um, but also the reason that I'm, I'm so capable of choosing that is because she has become and is, is only growing in her own ability to reflect and to inquire within herself. And we've had, you know, help with coaches and so many other people, but I am so willing to accept and acknowledge her point of view because as we continue to deepen our relationship, she also will look in and we have, you know, people who support us and communication frameworks to establish a level of communication where we can continue to, to grow and find common ground. But, uh, so in terms of how important it is, it's just, I, yeah, I'm so, I'm so lucky, man. I have a, I have a relationship that is more important than me. And, you know, so again, it's like the idea of transcending the self I get to do that. And how how lucky am I to have that experience, you
0: know? Yeah, I feel the same way about my relationship with Jenny. I um
1: what's your favorite thing about
0: her? Oh man, she's so smart. She's so freaking smart and it's like intimidating. You know? <laughs> and I'm just like, and she and she'll call me out on my bullshit. Like she's not just gonna accept. Um You know, she won't just accept something. She she'll question it. And she's so curious. And that's what I think makes her so smart and also so sexy. Is like, I just remember the the first week that we were together, like she came into a group of maybe like five or six of my friends. It was actually July fourth. She came from New York in LA. And just watching the way that she interacted with people, just the way that she was curious, the way that she asked questions. And then she sat back and listened. It's just inspiring, you know, and she has so much to share, but often when I see her interact with others, it's just this state of deep listening and curiosity, and that's super inspiring to me. But I mean I called in, like I called in a strong independent woman. I was like, that's what I want, a strong independent woman. <laughs> and then it happened, I was like, oh man, like I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> how do I how do I deal? because uh, you know, obviously I'm I'm growing and doing a lot of work as well. So
1: constant unfolding.
0: It is for sure. Yeah. I guess um just last, you know, last personal question for you. I mean, maybe one or two, but sticking with the family theme. So like what changed for you when you became a father um, and then following on that, like what do you want most in this world for your son, Hiro?
1: Thank you for the question. What most changed is um, yeah, the, like just like the, the recognition and we talked so much about that achievement and that acquisition mindset. Like the idea that there is like something else to be done. And I think that more than anything else, like what I've realized is how, how complete and peaceful and perfect the world is um, without anything happening, of like to be in the presence of my child and to simply be doing nothing has like afforded me this this level of of presence and recognition of like the miracle of existence.
0: Mm, to so beautiful.
1: Yeah, a new extent. And so I mean the fact that I get those moments, you know, with him and he takes me to that space. I think that, you know, in in other ways it translates to my my experience of life. And yeah, you know, we we sell these, we have this little art kind of a project called the holy shit we're alive (laughs) you know so much of my life is spent focusing on gratitude with tribute and other stuff but just this idea of really recognizing the the miracle of life and and having such deep reverence for it i think he's given me that uh in spades which has been really a gift from from hero um who's at the Santa Monica children's museum going absolutely bonkers right now. Um,
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for coming here instead of joining. I want to answer
1: the other other thing, which is that what do I want for him? Um, What I, what I want for him is what I say to him every single night. And i let him know. So I, I put here to sleep every night. That's like my thing. Mm. And every night before he goes to sleep, I tell him the same three things. I say, uh, you are loved, you are supported, you are perfect exactly as you are, and it's just this idea that if I can provide a foundation where he knows that he's loved, he's supported, and that he's perfect for exactly who he is. That um, yeah, I'm excited for for him to grow up in a world knowing that foundationally, you know, he has that and that he can kind of interact with the world really kind of like on his own and as it
0: is um, with that knowing. So
1: that's, that's probably what I
0: want for him. Fuck. Yeah. Go hero. Go hero. Uh, Thanks again, man. Thank you, Andrew, for your time. Really appreciate this. This was super uh, enlightening conversation. I feel like I learned a ton. I'm excited to listen back. I'm excited for all the listeners on the show to, to kind of hear your words and, yeah, I'm really happy. Thank you.
1: Thank you for the questions, brother. I loved it. So, you know, for, for men interested in this kind of work, yeah, I was going to say we've got a couple of retreats coming up. We've got one in uh, March, uh, late March in L.A., Joshua Tree. Then we're back in uh, April. And in
0: who's we, just the so they know? Is,
1: is the Junto. Yeah, The Junto. Is the Junto is our uh men's movements
0: and i'll and i'll share links to um to junto for all the listeners and i'll discuss it a little bit more detail up front because we didn't dive into it but anything else that you want to leave with the listeners before we go
1: just just that go tell the people you care about that you love them Mm. take a deep breath holy shit you're alive
0: (laughs) awesome Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. You can follow me on social media at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium, and Facebook. Uh, We have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Lookup Podcast um, on Facebook, so check us out. You can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out and if there's any way that I can improve please let me know feel free to reach out if you have any guest recommendations please let me know other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background you know this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support i want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of The Look Up Podcast.